Welcome to Tiski Sour. Tonight we're talking about the Windrush scandal, the latest developments in Priti Patel's hideous plan to deport people to Rwanda, Carrie Johnson's party with the gays. Could this be the one that brings the whole edifice down? Um, and we'll be talking about the pretty horrible scenes from Paris on the weekend at the Champions League final. Ash is away today, but I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Moya Lovian McLean. How are you doing? Well, twice in two weeks. I feel honoured. Well, you've got to get used to it. I feel like this could become a pattern, you know. Obviously not in Ash's spot, but when we make this show even more regular than it is now, that, that's the little hint I'll give you there. The Windrush scandal saw hundreds of people who had lived in Britain almost all their lives hounded by the Home Office. People lost jobs and homes because they could not provide documentation required to prove their citizenship. Some were deported to countries they had not lived in for 50 years. The human cost for people like Paulette Wilson was enormous. She moved to the UK from Jamaica in 1968 when she was 10. In 2017, she was classed as an illegal immigrant taken to the Yarlswood Removal Centre and threatened with deportation. The hostile environment made me feel like I, I was an alien, like I didn't exist. I'm seeing my mum. She's changed. She's not the same person. And like she said with her, sometimes I can be talking to her and I'm talking and I'm saying, isn't it, mum? And she's like, what? And it's like she's in her own little world. And I say, mum, you need to stop thinking and worrying because the more you think and worrying, it's going to make you ill. There was one time I went to see my mum and she wouldn't open the door. And I said, mum, I can hear you. I know you're in there. Open the door. And she opened the door and she was in bits. She was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I just, I just don't know. And I, she said, I go to, into my room and I feel like I'm in Yarswood. I mean, I've had people die around me and I've never had that feeling that I had when they, um, my mum phoned me and said that she was going, she's been detained and she's going on to Bedfordshire. I actually dropped to the floor, to tell you the truth, and I just wasn't myself after that. The scandal led to the resignation of a Home Secretary, an official apology from the government and a compensation scheme. And the Home Office would also commission research into what allowed the scandal to happen. Not all of that has been published, though, and thanks to a leak to The Guardian, we have an idea why. The 52-page analysis by an unnamed historian describes how the, quote, British Empire depended on a racist ideology in order to function, and sets out how this affected the laws passed in the post-war period. It concludes that the origins of the, quote, deep-rooted racism of the Windrush scandal lie in the fact that during the period 1950 to 1981, every single piece of immigration or citizenship legislation was designed, at least in part, to reduce the number of people with black or brown skin who were permitted to live and work in the UK. It finds that the scandal was caused by a failure to recognise that changes to British immigration law over the past 70 years had a more negative impact on black people than on other racial and ethnic groups. And then this is a quote from the report. As a result, the experiences of Britain's black communities, of the home office, of the law and of life in the UK have been fundamentally different from those of white communities, the report states. Major immigration legislation in 1962, 1968 and 1971 was designed to reduce the proportion of people living in the United Kingdom who did not have white skin. The Guardian report that this research has been made available to staff within the Home Office for around a year now, but that officials have repeatedly refused requests to make the findings public. Earlier today, I spoke to immigration barrister Zaira Hassan. I began by asking her the significance of a Home Office commissioned report coming to such frank conclusions. 
It's an interesting revelation. I'm not sure how significant it is that a Home Office report comes to this conclusion, because I think that undermines the fact that black, brown and racialized communities and people who've been working against borders and against the British immigration regime for, for decades have said this for such a long time. Um, and they have really emphasized how it's so obvious that our immigration laws in this country are built from Britain's colonial legacy. So I think it's interesting that the Home Office, in a report that it's commissioned, is mirroring this language. But it's obviously very telling that it's also tried to suppress this report and it's only come out because it's been leaked. So I think it's significant for us to be able to reckon with the fact that we know now that the Home Office is trying to explain to its own staff the history of the immigration system. But I don't think it's significant that this report was commissioned by the Home Office because I think that, yeah, communities who've been working against the Home Office have been saying this themselves. Obviously, we haven't seen the full report, but the content, as far as I understand, relates to policies between 1950 and 1981. And that's what the author, the unnamed um, historian, is saying. The policies were intended to reduce and limit non-white people coming to Britain. To what extent is that a feature of past legislation? And to what extent does that thread, that sort of inherent racism, really, still exist in immigration policy today? The important thing to know is that Obviously, that level of racism is absolutely inherent to immigration laws and policy today, as it was in the 50s, as it was in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I think a really good example of this is the fact that we can see by tracing immigration laws from the 50s to the 80s, which is which are the laws, as you say, that this report covers. We're entirely about creating different modes and uh, terms of citizenship and nationality. And that was essentially done because after the British Nationality Act of 1948, that created the ability for people who were identified then as so-called Commonwealth citizens to come and live in the UK. And obviously, most of those people were black and brown people, people who were former subjects of the British Empire. And because the UK, because of racism in the UK and because the British state didn't want so many black and brown people coming to the UK, they created ways of controlling immigration on the basis of race, but purportedly on the basis of where someone had uh, grown up, where someone was born, what their relationship history was to the UK. But obviously, as we see, that is something that has um, that, that essentially is, is racialized. And that's exactly what continues to happen in the UK. That's exactly what the hostile environment policies are based on. They're based on racial ideas of who should be allowed the right to work, the right to healthcare, the right to education. And that's also what we see in ongoing legislation around citizenship. For example, with the Nationality and Borders Act, having the ability to strip people of their citizenship without prior notice, but then also creating routes for settlement and citizenship for others. So I think that, you know, the kind of really basic explanation of this is what Nadine El Anani calls ongoing expressions of empire. And I think we can see every piece of immigration law and policy in the UK from 48 until now as that, as ongoing expressions of empire. And that expression is one which is obviously racialized and racist. We're going to talk about some of the most brutal elements of Priti Patel's current migration policy in one moment. First of all, I just want to put to you what I imagine would be her argument, which is to say, actually, on the face of it, Britain's immigration policies have become less racialized because previously Europeans, and when we were in the European Union, they got privileged access to, to come into the UK. Now with the points-based systems, it, it's more race-blind than it was 
four years ago. I mean, how would you respond to, to that kind of argument? Obviously, as we have seen, you know, there, there have always been two rules, one for EU migrants and one for non-EU migrants. Whilst obviously Brexit has happened, there's still a distinction between people who came to the UK as someone who lived in the European Union and as someone who didn't. I think a really clear example of that is the deportation regime in the UK. So there is um, essentially a discretion for the British state to deport someone who is an EU national. And it's automatic um, for someone who's convicted of a 12 month plus prison sentence who's not an EU national. But even within that, we can see, you know, people are subject to automatic deportation if they're from a country where they're likely to be black or brown. And if they're from the EU, it's discretionary. But I see from the work that I do that essentially every case I have of an EU national who's been subject to deportation proceedings, they are also black or brown. So even within the EU regime and even within that kind of um, hierarchy that the state has created, people who are black and brown who could benefit from that hierarchy don't anyway. So the whole system is imbued by this sort of racist ideology that operates on a kind of systematic level, but also on an individual level, which is what I see, obviously, as someone who represents people every day. I want to talk to you now about Priti Patel's flagship policy. This is sending asylum seekers or her plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Because ITV this week reported on a document which is being given to people telling them that they are being relocated to Rwanda or that they, they might be relocated to Rwanda. It says, I'm being relocated to Rwanda. What does this mean for me? The first question is, where is Rwanda? And then it gives you a map. ITV report that recipients of these leaflets, if they're already in detention, will get seven days, only seven days, to respond to say they don't think they should be liable to being sent to Rwanda, 14 days if they're not in detention. So it seems completely unreasonable. Obviously, the, the policy in general is, is, is completely unreasonable. How likely is this to be able to go ahead? Is this legal in, in, in the most simple terms? From my perspective, it, it definitely does not seem legal. In terms of the seven day notice period, obviously, you know, that entirely undermines the, the idea that people can access lawyers in sufficient time and also can effectively put forward the reasons why they don't believe that they should be removed to Rwanda. You know, as someone who practices in the system all the time, it is impossible to get together all the necessary information and documents you need to effectively challenge a removal in seven days. A lot of the asylum cases I do, a lot of the deportation work I do, takes years to actually get to court in order to compile all the evidence. And whilst, yes, maybe, you know, in that time, there might be the ability for someone to put forward brief reasons, that doesn't look like it's going to be enough to stop the Home Office affecting what they're going to do. So I think that there probably does need to be some sort of systems challenge to, in particular, this seven-day notice period. But I know that there are already two legal challenges going on against the Rwanda policy in its entirety, um, one by detention action and one by freedom from, uh, from torture. And so I'm not sure whether those organizations might, might, you know, also challenge the notice period as part of their broader challenge. But it's very clear that obviously in cases that are involving people who have fled their countries, who could be victims of torture or survivors of um, sexual violence, who could have very, very complex needs, could have PTSD. It's just impossible for them to be able on their own when they're in detention, where they're already separated from the ability to access lawyers easily to compile all the information they need to stop that from happening in seven days. 
So I definitely think that, um, you know, one of the challenges that's ongoing or a new challenge is going to need to challenge that that particular notice period once more information is revealed about it. Talk us through the legal process here, because obviously, you know, the fact that these flyers are being handed out means that there are some people in the Home Office who, who at least want to give the impression that these deportations are about to start very soon. You're saying these, these legal challenges are going through the courts. What's the time frame here? Can, can they not start sending people to Rwanda until these, these cases have gone through the courts? Or can they be deporting people in the meantime while this challenge is being fought? Well, it looks like at the moment, from what I've seen and heard, that anyone who has been given a notice of removal to Rwanda has managed to get that stayed, so has managed to get that postponed in light of these legal challenges. And that has been something that's happened previously where removals are not affected, while some ongoing legal challenge that's going to have an impact on those removals is being determined. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that the Home Office can't go and act and do what they want to do because they often act outside the law. Um, they often act in ways in which, of course, many, many of us would say are, are unlawful, not only unlawful, but obviously inhumane. But it does seem as though no one has been removed um, under the Rwanda policy yet. And it doesn't seem as though anyone's at kind of imminent risk of removal because of these challenges. But it is something people are monitoring, um, particularly organisations like Care for Calais, who are also doing one of the legal challenges with detention action. But obviously, what, what's being hoped is that, you know, these challenges are successful, but not only, you know, obviously relying on legal routes, but also relying on the incredible response there has been in the anti-raids movement and through direct actions against charter flights to actually stop any removals um, through the power of collective action as well. That was Barrister Zaira Hassan speaking to me earlier today. Let's go straight on to our next very much related story. When Britain voted to leave the EU, there was widespread concern it would lead to increased xenophobia. And immediately following the vote, reported hate crimes did increase by an estimated 15 to 20 percent. But when it comes to attitudes to immigration, data analysts have been pondering over this graph. It shows that following the Brexit vote, concern about immigration collapsed. And this was all while actual immigration numbers continued to increase. In 2016, over 40% of the public said immigration was one of the most important issues facing the UK. That's now below 10%. Annual immigration numbers have gone from around 600,000 to over 700,000. Polling from the think tank Britain Future has also found that people's perceptions of immigration in relation to different aspects of life has become much more positive. In 2012, a majority of Britain's thought immigrants had a net negative impact on schools and the NHS. That's now positive. And attitudes to immigrants in nearly every aspect of life have improved over the past 10 years. That's also borne out in data from the British election study. Their surveys show that at the time of the Brexit referendum, only 42% of the public thought immigrants had a positive impact on the economy. That's now above 60%. The direction of travel is the same in terms of culture. In 2016, only 38% thought immigration had a positive impact on British culture. It's now well over 50%. And this is perhaps the most impressive stat. For the first time ever, Britons who want immigration reduced are a minority. Until this year, a majority of the public had always wanted either immigration to be reduced a lot or to be reduced a little. Now, a majority want immigration to be increased or to stay the same. So what explains this change? 
One theory is that the Brexit vote didn't show that Britons were anti-migrant, but just that they wanted control of migration. Now they have it, they're more relaxed. Some evidence for this um, is a poll which was done by the think tank British Future. They asked people, which of the following is most important to you? And so they gave people the option, the UK government having control over who can and can't come into the country, whether or not that means immigration numbers are significantly reduced. 43% said that was the most important. The other option, an immigration system that deters people from coming to the UK so numbers remain low. Only 25% of people said that. So the implication from this is that people didn't want to reduce immigration. They didn't want to deter migrants. All they wanted was some control. Now that we've left the EU, all of these people who had concerns about immigration don't have them anymore because they were never fussed about numbers, which are still going up. What they were fussed about is control. So that's one potential explanation. However, John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times points to another possible explanation. This chart tracks mentions of immigration in Daily Mail articles and people's concern about immigration. As you can see, it's almost a perfect match. One hopeful sign, though, is this. If you update that graph to go to 2022, this happens. Articles mentioning immigrants have increased again in the Daily Mail, but public opinion this time doesn't seem to be following suit. Moya, I find all of this incredibly fascinating. What's your analysis of, of Britain's seeming to, according to, to the polling data, seeming to, to be warming to high levels of immigration or higher than we have, let's say? Well, I do think one of the reasons is clearly the role of the media and how the media has influenced attitudes towards immigration, as pointed out by both yourself and John Byrne Murdoch. As we talked about in last week's show, actually, the fact that the Daily Mail's circulation, along with the circulation of the Express, Telegraph and so on, have gone down in terms of physical papers where a lot of these front pages were held, that's surely a significant factor in this. What's also something I think we should discuss is that even though the public might be becoming less overtly xenophobic in terms of immigration, it hasn't stopped politicians driving on with perhaps some of the most draconian systems and immigration controls that we've seen in a very long time. The system that they're adopting now is a deterrent system, which research says almost none of the public actually want at all. And another thing that we should talk about is the idea, this idea of control. It's not that the public have control, it's the illusion of control. And it did make me very demoralized, I think is the word, seeing how easy attitudes flipped as soon as it wasn't in the front pages anymore. So now we have to look, I think, to the digital sphere and where people are getting their news and the places that they source these, these headlines from now, such as, you know, the major news site in the UK is still the BBC. Most people see it as impartial despite what we might think about the way it covers stories, a lot of people get, younger generations get their news from social media and headlines and click through. So we should be looking, I think, there and what those sites are saying about immigration, what stories people are seeing about immigration to also understand what might be coming up in the future when it comes to attitudes to immigration. I take your initial point about we are still seeing politicians really trying to stoke these flames that conservatives definitely want a wedge issue at the next election to be, for example, these boats crossing the channel. That's why Priti Patel is, is talking about this Rwanda policy when they don't really want to be talking about the cost of living or party gate or, or whatever. They think that should be a vote winner in the key places they need to win votes. But I suppose what this polling suggests is that might not work. I mean, you know, it could backfire. My guess is probably people don't care enough about it to not vote for the Conservatives because they're doing this. But it could be the case that people think, why are they talking about 
Rwanda and these boats when what I care about is the cost of living. So you could have some hope there now that it's not this to get elected, you have to be anti-migrant. There's no possible alternative. I think that's true, personally. I don't think you have to be anti-migrant. I mean more that if newspapers decide it's an issue again, it becomes an issue. Priti Patel's agenda is very ideologically driven. And I think that's something we've seen from the start. She's ignored all opinion polling or, um, what's the word, testing the water of public feeling around these policies and pressed on with them anyway. She's pressed on with them in spite of objections from all corners, not just people who have oppositional politics, but people on her side of the commons. So when you look at Priti Patel's agenda, then it is very much ideological. When you look at someone like Boris and why he might be supporting it, I think that's more difficult because he's a chameleon when it comes to politics. He does what it takes in order to distract from his scandal of the day. But I do think that immigration fundamentally used to be entwined with economic ideas about insecurity. It was, you know, these ideas that these migrants are coming over here and they're stealing your jobs. And that was the narrative put across. That is no longer the narrative being put across by the media in the same way. So economic insecurities have become more divorced from the issue of immigration. And I think, as we will see, economic insecurity is what's going to absolutely dominate in the next five years of politics. And there will be a lot of people in the media and in the Conservative Party who want people to blame that economic insecurity on, on migrants. So, I mean, we obviously need to be very much attuned to that and awake to that possibility. But hopefully, some very small signs, it might not be as successful this decade as it was in the last one. But, you know, I don't say that with too much confidence, I have to say. At Navarra Media right now, we're running a fundraiser to increase our number of supporters. When we began the fundraiser, we had around 6,000 of you regularly backing us. And we're hoping to increase that to 10,000. That's our target. We can take a look now at how many of you have signed up so far. So we are halfway there. So we were at 6,000. We want to get to 10,000. We are now at 8,000. 2,000 more of you have signed up since we launched our fundraiser. Really excited about that, but we really, really are keen to get to that 10,000 target. So if you haven't already, please do go to navaramedia.com slash support. I'm sure as you can imagine, it is our regular donors. That's what really makes all of this possible. It means we can plan for the future because we know um, what income we've got coming in every month. My traditional ask has been for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month because we're so keen now just to increase the number of supporters. And because we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, we've changed that slightly. So we're saying one pound, three pound, five pound, whatever you can afford, please just become a supporter. Let's go straight on to our next story. In the face of rampant inflation, Britain's railway workers are set to go on strike. Members of the RMT union voted by 87% in favour of industrial action on an impressive 71% turnout. Really, really incredible. But the union's boss, Mick Lynch, has expressed disappointment at the lack of support from some quarters. So I'd like to see the Labour Party and its leadership come in behind working class people so that they ensure they get a pay rise, so there's some support from the politicians as well as from the trade unions. Wow. And this is, this is a measure for Keir Starmer so that he can decide whether he's on the side of the workers in this country or on the side of the bosses. Do you think that he hasn't made that clear then? He hasn't made it clear at all. I've not heard him say once uh, during the current disputes, such as at the Co Coventry uh, Council, where the, the Labour Council sought to cut workers' wages and cut their conditions. I've seen no response from the Labour front bench that says... We support the workers in their struggles. And that is the role of a Labour Party. The name gives it away. that They're, support, they're there to support the Labour movement. Do you think that Keir Starmer's on the side of workers? 
I can't see it at the moment. So Labour won't get behind workers wanting a pay rise to match inflation. A pay rise to match inflation means trying to fight a pay cut. But perhaps, let's be fair, perhaps Labour have other policies that will make a material difference to the lives of the working class. Luckily, on the same programme as Mick Lynch was the head of Labour's policy review, Annalise Dodds. Your head of Labour's policy review that was launched in June 2021, so it's been running for a year now, we're currently facing uh, an absolute cost of living crisis, inflation at a 40-year high, potentially the biggest drop in living standards since records began. What is the single transformative idea that you've come up with in this year-long policy review? Well, we've come up with many, many ideas. If people are particularly interested, they can look at our reports on the Labour website. I've never seen anyone have less confidence in the message they've got out to say. I mean, if anyone's actually interested, like if you really want to know our policies, which would be a bit weird, that would be surprising. You could go to the website. You know, they're all up there. I'm not going to explain them now. That would be confusing, complicated, boring. There are loads of them. Trust me. Go to the website, labor.com, whatever it is, labor.com forward slash do we have any policies. Moya, I want to bring you in on this because Labour are ahead in the polls. We have to give them that. Um, I think a lot to do with the Conservatives' Partygate scandal, also because the electorate don't seem to be scared of Keir Starmer. They're not excited by him. But they aren't giving us many reasons to actually vote for them, are they? There's not much reason to be excited for a Labour government. It's in keeping with a lot of Labour's stretch throughout the 21st century that they're not giving you much to vote for. There was a brief period where I felt excited about voting for Labour again. But most of the time, it's been coasting on a message of we're not the Tories. And what's actually quite interesting is Starmer personally is very unpopular. Britain elects, I think, has him on the same ratings as Johnson. YouGov has the majority of respondents saying that he's doing badly as Labour leader. But it might be enough that Labour are not the Tories. And that's the sad thing. There's a new report that just came out by the Nuffield Politics Research Centre, and it was examining economic insecurity and voting intention. It's really, it's really interesting. And it mainly wants to confront this idea of the red wall and what is actually driving political realignment. And instead of saying that, you know, 20 to 19 Tory support was made up of economically insecure and socially conservative voters in that red wall, it says that Tory support is overwhelmingly coming from economically secure older voters who, even if they think of themselves as working class and don't have stonking incomes, they own property and they have less outgoings. And Sam Friedman from his newsletter commenters Freed um, was analysing this report. And what he said was political realignment will be basically driven by two specific groups, which are economically insecure non-graduates under 50 who tend to be more socially conservative, probably voted leave, and graduates who attain economic security much later in life than their counterparts have in previous decades and tend to hold more progressive attitudes. And marginal constituencies, which decides upcoming elections, now get a lot of the economically insecure non-graduate socially conservative voters who, this is key, are getting fed up with the cost of living crisis and are considering switching back to Labour. They usually don't vote. When they do vote, they tend to vote for issues like Brexit on the Leave side. But if they go Labour, that is going to be a big shift. Meanwhile, the Tories, with their culture wars, are alienating both economically insecure graduates in cities who tend to be left-leaning and their more secure counterparts who've gone out to the commuter belt. So in the past, you know, if you bought a house, you might tend to swing more Tory once you get into about like past 30, etc. and have attained property. But now these voters are heading to the likes of the Lib Dems. So 
if the economic crisis that is coming also bites into the secure, economically secure, Tory, um, socially conservative voters that they have depended on thus far, the realignment is going to be pretty extreme. And it's sad to say that Labour won't have the reinforcement to actually give us something to vote for, because that will be enough. Well, you say Labour won't have the exciting policies, but actually one theory as to the lack of policies on show now is not that they don't have any ideas, not that they're too scared to have policies, but rather that Starmer is saving them all up for his book. The Labour leader has signed a deal to write a book about Britain under a Labour government. According to the Times, Starmer started writing it in his office at home in Kentish Town, North London, during lockdown, and initially intended it to be a space to organise his ideas. However, he realised there was some, quote, good quality stuff, which officials felt could be used properly. This is now from a spokesperson for Keir Starmer. The result of a project started during lockdown. Keir's book lays out his plans for a renewed Britain and why he believes in the vital importance of putting integrity back into public life. It all sounds about as riveting as Sakir's 90-minute conference speech, but perhaps more interesting than the contents of the book itself is who he's publishing it with. Starmer has signed the deal with HarperCollins, an imprint owned by, you guessed it, Rupert Murdoch. Moya, could this all be a ploy for Starmer to get Rupert Murdoch on side? I don't think so, mainly because Rupert Murdoch is driven by the pursuit of profit. And I do just feel a Keir Starmer book is not going to result in that. What's interesting about this is HarperCollins has a reputation, at least in the past it's had a reputation, for being very much a centralised organisation that does answer directly to Murdoch. So in 1998, for example, there was a very controversial period where HarperCollins dropped a book by Lord Patton called East and West under orders from Rupert Murdoch because it would be was feared that it would be critical of China and News Corporation were at that point trying to expand within China. And as recently as 2012, then HarperCollins has been described as an organisation that very much operates under Murdoch's orders. He's had direct involvement. Now, I don't know if that is still the same now, but it's I think it's more interesting that HarperCollins are one of the only publishing houses that maybe were willing to offer Keir Starmer money for this book because I'm trying to think of the audience, and I'm coming up blank. Yeah, well, I mean, his advance was only 18k, so I would imagine, you know, he's the leader of the Labour Party. He's got a big, he's got a big following. Obviously, 18k is a lot of money, but compared to you know, like what what big authors get, I'm sure some people buy it. But I actually, I think probably HarperCollins were quite keen for it, and I think Keir Starmer was quite keen to go with HarperCollins because, you know, Rupert Murdoch likes to be very close. You know, Keir Starmer might be the next prime minister. Rupert Murdoch wants to be close with everyone who might be the next prime minister. And I think the Keir Starmer team really want an in with, with News International. I mean, it is also the case that if you, this book's going to be really boring, I think. You know, I can't, obviously I can't, can't guarantee that, but I think it probably will. But if you go with HarperCollins, then the whole part of this, well, the whole point of the Murdoch family is then the Times will promote it, Times Radio will promote it, Talk Radio at least won't attack it, Talk TV now, presumably... You know, maybe we'll have a Piers Morgan, Keir Starmer interview about it. You'll have the whole time stable, which has a vested interest in promoting this book, which, you know, probably is going to be pretty helpful for him. With all of this, it's so tired. It's so boring. And Keir Starmer, at, even at Keir Starmer's peak, at his most successful, he's always just a carbon copy of at least five different leaders who've gone before. He's using the same tired strategies, the same tired structures to try and achieve his goals. And he will never, never get this sort of innovative, 
renown that he really wants. He is a beige man doing beige things. And once again, this, this HarperCollins deal, it's just, an, it's, it's a more unimaginative way of getting in bed with Rupert Murdoch. He can't even be bothered to do sort of like a background deal. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to sign with HarperCollins. I'm going to write a really boring book as part of my strategy to, to getting into power. And it's just the most plodding way possible of doing those sort of background, getting into bed with the evil tycoon. I, I just find it so boring. That's the problem. Everything around Keir Starmer is so boring. He's the banality of evil. Tony Blair got to go to like the really fancy yacht and smooth talk Rupert Murdoch. Tony he Blair became, had he became godfather to his son. An affair with Rupert Murdoch's wife. So that's how glamorous Tony Blair went with it. And Keir Starmer is never going to reach those heights. He's going to write a really boring book that won't sell very well. And even then, Rupert Murdoch won't respect him because he just doesn't have that pizzazz. I'm not sure what the status of that story is. So we're going to have to put a big fat capital letters allegedly um, on that one. But he is, is, I think, confirmed the godfather to Rupert Murdoch and Wendy Deng's son, interestingly. Next story. Just days after the release of the Sue Gray report, details of another Downing Street lockdown party have emerged. And crucially, there seems to be smoking gun evidence. The Sunday Times report that messages sent by the Prime Minister's wife on June the 19th, 2020, appeared to show that she was in the flat with several friends on the evening of her husband's 56th birthday. They also suggest that the Prime Minister went up to the flat at a time when events of two or more people indoors were banned except for work purposes. That sounds like a rule breach, and it took place on the only day for which Boris Johnson has received a fixed penalty notice. That fine was the birthday gathering in the cabinet room for which both Johnson and Rishi Sunak were fined. But he was helped by the fact that photos published in the Sue Gray report make it look really quite miserable. And it's difficult to resent someone whose birthday involves you know, all those packaged sandwiches. Um, that was earlier in the day, though. So as to what happened later, what we're learning about now, the Sunday Times report, the messages flagged up to case, that's the top civil servant, show that at 6.15pm, A Downing Street aide told the Prime Minister's wife that her husband was on his way up to the flat. She replied that she was already there and suggested that she was with an an unspecified number of male friends. Now, Harry York was one of the authors of that piece, and he raised a lot of interest by tweeting this about the Carrie Johnson texts. So he says, she used a very specific term to refer to the friends. Obviously, this got everyone wondering what the specific term was. The Sunday Times wouldn't print it. But a clue can be found in a Dan Hodges piece from back in February, an article about Carrie Johnson. He wrote then, one Downing Street staffer told me, quote, she'd say, I'm with the gays up in the flat. Can you come up? It was meant as an affectionate nickname, but I'm told it made a number of aides uncomfortable. So the gays in question are thought to be two high-level advisors who were also Carrie Johnson's friends. Um, Moya, could Carrie Johnson's party with the gays um, be the most damaging one yet? Who among us has not had a fabulous party with the gays that we've then agreed never to speak of afterwards? Um, (laughs) My related text messages, please do not go public. (laughs) I'm going to make sure I see you like Wagatha Christie just so that we can get those WhatsApp chats out there. (laughs) I don't think this will be the most damaging party yet simply because of fatigue. And this may be an unpopular thing to say. I think people are becoming fatigued with this story because it goes on and on and on. There was a report in Sky last week 
that I watched where they went to Tiverton, where by-election is currently taking place. And asked about Partygate and everyone said, oh, there's a war on, there's this on, there's that on. We don't care about Partygate anymore. And that is the thing with these stories and the problem with modern attention spans in particular. When they run on, you stop caring. And again, the thing that is always missing from this is the only positive solution that could come out of it, which is that the ordinary people on the ground who were disproportionately targeted, fined and prosecuted for breaking confusing and discriminatory enforced lockdown regulations would see those fines waived and those prosecutions overturned. But that does not seem to be on the agenda. And instead, we're focusing once more on the details of specific parties, which makes people tired and loses where the real, the real focus should be on these stories and the ordinary people who are disproportionately affected by these regulations. So I don't think it would be damaging to Boris, but I think we should take a moment again to remember the damage that has already been done to thousands of people for doing much less than he did. There's lots of different data you know, flying around about whether or not people care. So I've seen, there's definitely anecdotal evidence that people are sort of like, stop talking about the parties. And I can empathize with that, ultimately. But I think a lot of polling also says that people really do care. And also, when for the fact that this is still headline news, people blame the government as much as they blame anyone else, because they do think that the reason it's carrying on is because they wouldn't be straight with, with anyone. And it is notable that in this case, potentially a thing that we can learn as, as well as about the immorality of Boris Johnson is how the state covers for itself. And this definitely is giving cover up. The Sunday Times report, the Gray Inquiry was told in January this year by the aide that these texts existed. The aide claimed to have told Gray's investigators that while they did not want to forward the messages, they were prepared to come into the cabinet office to show the messages to inquiry officials in person. The aide also agreed to supply them to the Metropolitan Police's inquiry. However, the aide claimed that Gray's investigation team failed to follow up on the offer. Two weeks ago, once the Met inquiry had finished, the aide renewed the offer to the Gray team, but this went unheeded. So the Sue Gray report was supposed to put all the facts on the table to, I suppose, end the story. People can sort of read the facts and make their judgment. The police investigation was supposed to do the same. It does seem like now this, you know, all the facts are still not on the table, are they? Moya, is this a cover-up? I don't think we'll ever get all the facts on the table. And I think expecting to get all the facts on the table perhaps was optimistic. But it is, it's once again, it's, it's demoralising and disappointing having your fears confirmed. And that is what leads to further political disengagement. And when I spoke earlier about fatigue, I don't mean that it won't impact the government, but it'll be a general miasma of fatigue that leads people to disengage from politics more. There's multiple you know, pieces of research and studies that shows that when you have degradation, of you know political office and government and people don't trust their representatives or the systems that are built to govern the country they don't get more active instead they get demoralized which is unfortunately quite natural you become apathetic you think oh they're all the same they're this and that and the news that sue gray may have ignored key evidence in this investigation or may not have just put it all on the table as was promised is once again going to make people say as you have asked, is there a cover-up? Is there a conspiracy? And conspiratorial thinking, again, leads to that political disengagement. So it just runs round in these sad circles. And the question I'm interested in is how can we break people out of that? Is it at community level? Is it getting people you know, back into politics at grassroots and trying to disengage them from initially the parliamentary machinations and get, first of all, getting sort of their optimism and hope and their belief 
in the power of local politics back again before you start tackling these wider systems. But I don't have the answers. It's, it's just disappointing once more. I have to say, I want your thoughts on this. I'm always a little bit suspicious of, you know, people talking about conspiratorial thinking because, you know, sometimes conspiracies are true. And so I, I do find sometimes it's sort of an objection to, oh, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. Well, maybe it is, but maybe it's one of the true ones. You know, obviously there are lots of conspiracies that aren't true, that are wild, some that are plausible, but just wrong. But then there are also ones which are plausible and true and also ones which seem completely implausible, but also are true. Like all you have to do is, you know, read Vincent Bevin's book um, about the Jakarta method. And it's talking all of these you know, these ploys that the CIA did to bring down governments, which look bananas, you know, that, the, the height of conspiratorial thinking, but they happened, you know. So, Moya, how do you respond to my defense of conspiracy theories? I mean, cynicism is useful in certain doses. It's not that we should get rid of conspiratorial thinking altogether, especially when you do read the Jakarta method. And I think there was one attempt that was made to bring down a premier, which was making it look, hiring someone who looked like him to star in a porn movie and then disseminating it, which is just farcical, but still they tried it. That's, that's where the money was going. But it's not that having a grain of salt when you approach politics or the way that daily life is governed is something that we should shy away from. It's more that when conspiratorial and paranoid style of thinking take over, it does lead to political disengagement. There's really interesting research out there which shows that conspiratorial thinking leads to things like being less likely to vote, being less civically minded, but also a belief in sort of like being able to engage in violence, being less likely to donate, just not engaging with communities more. It isolates people because you are paranoid about the world around you. And that's not to say we shouldn't be challenging these things. Of course we should. We should be challenging these structures every single day. When we see this stuff, we should be saying this is not right. But when you're looking at a rotten system, constantly pointing, going like, that's a dead cat, that's a dead cat, that's a conspiracy, that's a conspiracy. When sometimes it is the sum of incompetence and just pure not being fit for office as well and not just a conspiracy then that plays into it too and i think we have to acknowledge how conspiratorial thinking impacts the psyche and think is there a more positive way of going about this that doesn't turn me curdle curdle my political instincts and suck the life out of me while these people are still able to you know go about their business and run the country into the ground absolutely unobstructed conspiracy theories in moderation Conspiracy theories only with evidence. I mean, that's the issue, you know, unless you have the evidence. And then also, if all you've got is conspiracy theories, it's going to be very difficult for you to be politically active. So you, you not everything is a conspiracy. You can have an effect on things. But also, yeah, sometimes we should be fairly suspicious of official narratives, although not always. Let's go to our final story. When they attended the Champions League final this weekend, thousands of Liverpool fans found themselves under attack by French police. Fans were pepper sprayed and tear gas was used. It pushed the match's kickoff back 30 minutes and people reporting from the scene made it sound really horrible. French authorities have blamed the events on what their interior minister has called industrial scale ticket fraud. But tear gas, of course, doesn't discriminate depending on what type of ticket someone has, real or fake. One attendee at the match was Labour MP Ian Byrne. He described the experience. It, it, it's really difficult to, to be honest just to talk about it and, I was, and, and, and seeing the scenes you know in, in this day and age uh, I've never witnessed anything uh, so bad since 1989 it was absolutely horrific and I'm getting phone calls by the minute uh, you know to, to go through that and, and, to, and, and to try and process what was actually happening you know would that have happened to any other sports fan you know this is the premium 
football event and to get treated like absolute animals, which you were, you know, and then for the narrative to begin, the French interior minister putting the tweet out, which he did, which was completely untrue. And again, that, uh, that narrative of lies, which we all know so well from 1989. And you heard there Ian Byrne reference 1989, which was the year of the Hillsborough disaster. In that tragedy, 97 Liverpool fans were crushed to death and then falsely smeared in the press, especially by the Murdoch press. Um, Moya, events in Paris look pretty grim. It also seems like it could have been worse. I don't know if it's useful to talk about it could have been worse when football fans are being treated so discriminatorily and with such force. I think what's interesting about this is in recent sort of months and weeks, we've seen a ramping up of policing of football fans. And, you know, we saw it last year with Euros. There was a big panic about football fans being in public, about storming, I think it was Wembley, where the final was taking place. Then in anyone who's following football has seen in recent weeks, there's been a lot of talk about pitch invasions and the dangers associated with that. And all of this has led to what I think is an increased and disproportionate amount of policing. But I also think we have to see this in the wider context of policing across Europe. There is a trend at the moment, both within the UK and France and places like Greece, for example, where draconian policing and draconian sort of like enforcement laws are being brought in. And you are seeing the almost unconscious impact of that with the policing of football fans. Football fans are a demographic like protesters who rub up quite regularly against the police. There is a history there. There is a context that feeds into their treatment. And I'd say it's almost like canaries in the coal mine. When you see football fans being treated like that by police and, you know, pepper sprayed, beaten for not doing anything, then this is the treatment that is, that is coming. This is the, they start that sort of disproportionate treating on these groups because these are the groups that meet them most often. And I think what we saw in France particularly is a really strong example of that. And if we don't combat these narratives now, it's going to be a case of, you know, what we've always said, you know, there was no one left to speak for me. And it's completely unfair to demonise entire group of football fans, the lies that the French media told. They said that they'd sold so many tickets that they couldn't get in and it was like face false tickets. But then you had all these images of this empty stadium. It just didn't add up and immediately the smears started. So it'd be good if we could like combat this and nip it in the bud as quickly as possible when it comes to counter-narratives. You know, I should explain, when I said it could have been worse, I didn't mean the police could have behaved worse and therefore we should be grateful they didn't. What I mean is, Given how the police acted, people could have died, right? Because if you've got thousands of people in a confined space and you start tear gassing them, what that can lead to is a crush, you know, where people do I'm die. I'm glad so, you clarified so I wasn't that, saying, Michael. I, was, I wasn't saying, oh, well, the police weren't as bad as they were at Hillsborough, so it's fine. I was saying the actions of the police could have led to something along the lines of Hillsborough, which is, I think, the point that Ian Byrne was, was making there. I agree with what you're saying, you know, in terms of the, you know, the explanations don't stack up because... Even if there, you know, there's been lots of denials that there was industrial scale ticket fraud. I have to say, I have absolutely no idea what is the the case there. I don't know how many people had fake tickets or if there were real tickets that were being called fake. I did hear someone on the radio today who said he was with people who 100% had real tickets because they were, you know, I think they were invited by BT Sport in there. It was a member of a band. I can't remember his exact name. Um, so they definitely had real tickets and they were turned away because the scanner wasn't working. So it seems like probably some more information will come out about that element of the story. But the fact is, whether or not there were some people with fake tickets, a stadium should be organized in such a way that you can stop people with fake tickets coming in without tear gassing hundreds of people in an indiscriminate way. 
you can't say, oh, sorry, we tear gassed you. Someone else had a fake ticket. I mean, you also can't say we tear gassed you because you had a fake ticket. Uh, a reasonable response to a counterfeit ticket, which of course someone might have bought, you know, not knowing it was counterfeit. They might have just been trying to get a last minute ticket to the match. And then suddenly they get pepper sprayed. That's, that's not <laughs> what the response is supposed to be. Um, apparently this has sparked a little bit of a diplomatic row. The British government are sort of coming out and saying these scenes don't look right. The French are saying this is because Liverpool weren't chaperoning their fans properly. They didn't make proper arrangements. The Real Madrid team, they made proper arrangements for their fans. That's why the Liverpool ones got tear gassed and the Real Madrid ones didn't. We we can talk about conspiracies. Is this going to become another cover-up or do you think all the facts of the matter are going to come out over the next coming days? Oh, you're asking me to make a prediction, Michael. You know my worst thing is making predictions. I think because it is an overseas issue, the one thing that Britain doesn't like is when, you know, we get just draconian policing overseas. It's fine if we do it to everyone over here, but if it's happening to our, our people overseas, then it's a problem. And, you know, even if you're Scouse and not English, then the British government's still going to be like, you can't do that to France, especially post-Brexit. So I think there'll be a bit of a fuss made by the government about the treatment of the fans. And in this case, it's, it's appropriate. It should be a fuss made. But we have to also remember that when fans are mistreated in the UK, that the same rules should be applying. And I do worry that with the sort of rhetoric that's going on, particularly around you know, pitch invasions in particular, that will be taken as an excuse for this sort of policing to be more frequently reapplied to fans as we've seen you know, in the past, in, in the 20th century particularly. So that's something I actually fear quite a lot. And people say, you know, well, there's some fans who are bad fans and this and that. And it's like, okay, but that does not mean that you treat the entire group of fans like that. That does not warrant this level of draconian policing. And as I said, I do think that it's a canary in the coal mine situation and that when groups that most often rub up against the police are starting to be treated like that, we need to look at what those methods are being, what methods are being used and take it as sort of forewarning for what is going to be rolled out against the wider population in the future with the advent of the Police Crime Sentencing Courts Bill getting royal assent. We've got an incredibly relevant comment here from David Congialis with a tenor. I was at Gate Y. All the reports are true. This was helped, unlike at Hillsborough 1989, by journalists who reported the truth quickly. I spoke to the Times and the Telegraph reporters who also gave us water. So there does seem to be you know, a situation here where French authorities, and I think UEFA as well, sort of really tried to cover it up. I remember watching the match where they sort of saying, oh, this has started half an hour late. And the impression I got from them was because, you know, tear gas had been let off maybe by fans. Like, it was very ambiguous and confusing, like when it was mentioned by the commentators. Um, I suppose one reason why potentially the media are being better this time than they were then is, as, as Moy is saying, that they are now talking about a, a foreign country. So when it's the French cops, the Times and the Telegraph are willing to be a little bit more frank and, and forward with the truth than when it was the English cops, as in 1989. Um, let's wrap up there. Moya, it's been a pleasure um, to be joined again by you this evening. Thank you so much. You know, I always enjoy talking conspiracies on Tusky's Hour. We don't delve in, in conspiracies too much, to be honest, compared to many people on YouTube. We'll be back on Wednesday, I suppose, at 7pm. You've been watching Tusky's Hour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.